Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit Firesider.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It's Monday. It's 12, actually, oh, one, Jack. Uh, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, so uh, as some of you may uh, have recognized, I, I do a new segment now. It's called Joys and Sorrows. It started out as aches and pains, but I decided that was too negative. And plus, <clears throat> let's face it, there are some joys out there, so let's enjoy them. So anyway, here's one of my first news items for the week in the joys and sorrows category. Cheese. Cheese is my favorite food. I don't know if you know this about me, but I am a card-carrying cheeseaholic. Um, So I just wanted you all to know that there is a huge glut of cheese in the American market. Most of it is American cheese, in quotations, presumably that cheese-like food substance that is made of milk, but that makes... Uh, that doesn't really taste like anything, but it does make the very best grilled cheese sandwiches. I think we can all agree on that. Um, anyway, the, the, it turns out the reason we have a big glut is that the European Union is exporting more cheese and butter to us than, not surprisingly, we do to them. Does this mean that Americans are waking up to the fact that the European Union has way better butter and even dead simple boring cheese than we do? Hard to say, but I do know that when they are putting cheese into cat food, we have a problem. Anyway, that little item, um, the last about the cat food, is my own addition to this, but I did glean this from the Bloomberg News. You know, I do feed my cats um, sometimes a a dish of fancy feast made with cheese. And I I wondered when I first saw it on the market, I was like, why is there cheese in cat food? Like, I thought dairy wasn't even that good for them. But anyway, I feed it to them because I would like cheese in my cat food. Um, here's the next item on my joys and sorrows. I, I guess this would come in the, in the in the concept of joy, but perhaps mitigated with a bit of sorrow. I think we have to be a little nuanced in these things. Um, so pot, as it turns out, um, is going to revive the cigarette industry. Again, this is a Bloomberg News item. I've suddenly discovered the Bloomberg News site, and I do find it kind of fun and interesting to read. They often cover stuff that isn't in other mainstream papers. Anyway, turns out big tobacco is poised to make the big play once uh, pot becomes federally decriminalized, meaning not by state by state, but nationally. And until then, they're holding off. But what I find surprising about this news item is why hasn't the cigarette industry, which is obviously dying a slow death, why haven't they been lobbying heavily to have pot decriminalized in all 50 states for years? You would have thought that this would be like the no-brainer, much as I hate that expression, the no-brainer move for them. And given how much power the lobby has, you'd think that they could have affected this change long ago. But anyway, there it is. But pot obviously represents the future for the tobacco industry. So, um, you know, what can I say? Buy stock in R.J. Reynolds. I don't know. Uh <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite stories this week, uh, this came from Salon.com, uh, it was another long and flaming piece about Senator Sam Brownback of Kansas, um, which described his incredible incompetence and stupidity in following that economic model whose inventor has repudiated it, otherwise known as trickle-down 
economics. Um, Brownback's devotion to this discredited Republican trope of, quote, getting the state out of the way of the good citizen and cutting taxes on the rich has resulted in a gutted educational system, crumbling infrastructure and threats to public safety through lack of personnel for basic services such as firefighters and police officers. Um, But the real story in this, I mean, the Salon article focused especially on the educational aspect of this. um, And, you know, it's just the idea that this state would continue to support this moronic man who really should be drummed out of town on, you know, of rail, uh, tarred and feathered and otherwise held up as, a, as an example of, of how stupid our elected officials can be. Um, anyway, that's one of my joys. I love it when this guy gets kicked in the ass. Um, and then <clears throat> here is another very joyful moment. And that was um, this really this just cracked me up. I mean, you, this is like in the truth is stranger than fiction uh, category. Um, and that was that the uh, perpetually tan John Boehner, our former uh, Speaker of the House, remember him? Uh, he came out of retirement recently last week to describe Ted Cruz as the living incarnation of Lucifer and the, quote, most miserable son of a bitch he had ever had to work with. Yes, that is joyous. <laughs> and yet, once again, one must recall that there is something deeply sorrowful about the fact that our Republican choices are down to an asshole like Ted Cruz and a monster like Donald Trump. I mean, it's just, you know, there is sorrow and joy, I guess, all the time, right? And finally, um, and Jack, you'll be queuing up our clip now. Uh, finally, my greatest joy this week, and this I mean it without not tempered with not one iota of sorrow, but absolutely my greatest joy this week was to learn that my not frequent enough, but very favorite guest, Dr. Marion Nessel, won a James Beard Award for her superb book, Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. Uh, my interview with Marion on the publication of the book <clears throat> can be heard in episode number 164 in September of 2015, but we're going to play a short clip from it right now. And uh, Take it away, Jack. Thank you. One, because I was greatly influenced by Karen Sokol Gutierrez, who's a physician in California, who runs an NGO mm-hmm. that goes down to uh, places in Latin America and works with parents around tooth decay issues, where baby bottle tooth decay is just an enormous, enormous problem. And her story is so interesting because she was a Peace Corps volunteer yeah. in El Salvador 25 or 30 years ago ago um, and there's this gorgeous she has this, she gave me this gorgeous photograph which is reproduced in the yes. book of her with kids in El Salvador with these beautiful smiles on their faces she went back 25 years later and discovered that the kids all had rotted out teeth because mm. they'd started drinking sodas mm. And the and there were sodas in the baby bottles, and there were sodas in school, and there were sodas everywhere. Yeah. And so she's got a campaign going on there that's very, very successfully getting people to try to keep sodas away from kids. That's part of the we're winning advocacy piece yes. in this. Yes. Um, so that's the tooth decay story. It's greatly ignored, and it shouldn't be, because the strongest evidence for um, a a health impact of sodas on uh, on you know human physiology is in tooth decay, yes. where where it's incontrovertible evidence. It's been known about forever, um, and it's now time to do something about it. So that one we can d- dispense with. I want to talk about marketing to kids. 
because I think it's really crucial. Really important. Um, and the whole and the environmental issues. The water yeah. chapter was one of the big revelations to me. Yeah. Was how much water it takes to create a bottle of soda. I mean, that's just an extraordinary story. Yes. In part because both Coke and Pepsi win prizes for reducing their environmental impact in the water area. Um, and in fact, the New York Times had an article quite recently that read to me like it was written by somebody who had just reproduced the press release. Oh, dear. About how Coca-Cola had gotten its water fo- footprint, that is the amount of water that it takes to produce a liter of soda, down to practically one. Um, and in fact, this, uh, the soda companies have been able to do that, but none of that counts the water that's required to clean the plant, wash the bottles, sure. um, and grow the sugar, which is the really big one. So that was Marion Nessel uh, talking about her fantastic book, Soda Politics, um, <clears throat> taking on big soda and winning. She just won the James Beard Award. If you haven't picked up a copy of this book, uh, I really recommend it. It's, you know, it's it's as important in its way as food politics was when that first came out oh, about 11 or 12 years ago now. Um, and it really just shows the power of the sugar lobby, the power of the beverage uh, American Beverage Association and the like uh, in spreading, uh, you know, and disseminating and encouraging the consumption of a product which is really incontrovertibly bad for you. I mean, there's just, there is literally not one redeeming quality in drinking soda other than the gustatory pleasure, the dubious gustatory pleasure of of ingesting a sugary, you know, beverage, which, you know, every once in a while is nice. But I mean, honestly, it's just incredible to me when I, you know, when I see families shopping in grocery stores, as I do, or even people that I, who are my age and should know better, and you think do know better, and their beverage of choice um, is not vodka, like mine, or, you know, grapefruit juice, fresh squeezed, or, you know, like, I mean, or even just plain old water or seltzer, if you like bubbles, which I do. I love bubbly water. Um, but Diet Coke. I mean, this is a, you know, I'm just, this is one person who's well-educated. I mean, just, you know, and I know must probably hundreds of others who uh, similarly grew up on sodas and, um, and then, you know, made the switch to diet soda as if that was somehow going to be better. And, um, you know, it's just not good. There's no, there is no redeeming quality to soda and really the whole industry should be shut down. So that that is my conclude the conclusion that I've come to <laughs> about the industry and I think we'll take a short sponsor drop now because the, after this we're going to be listening to me talk about what I feel like talking about because well it's just that kind of a show today. So we'll be right back with our uh the rest of the program after this sponsor drop. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Firesider added whole raw certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. 
They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Fire cider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Fire cider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. I am going there right after this show. I made fire cider last year. Actually, I did make fire cider. Uh, I was totally inspired by... um, I don't know, somebody who put something up on the internet about it. Anyway, so I did it. I made it just as you just, as that commercial described it. It was, you know, I used oranges and lemons and garlic and turmeric and everything. And um, unfortunately, it gave me the most intense garlic breath. Like it could not be consumed at the beginning of the day. It had to be consumed before I went to bed. Wow, or that's I why would you got to get like, this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> No, I've had it. No garlic breath. Really? Yeah. Well, why was mine so garlicky? I don't know, Katie. Maybe I used too much. I don't know. But anyway, I definitely endorsed the idea. I thought it was a great concept. And of course, I'm all about supporting the microbiome, and that's what this is about. In fact, there's a fantastic uh, exhibition at the Natural History Museum, which I have not yet been to, but which I heard a wonderful interview on our um, rival station, National Public Radio, WNYC. (laughs) And... um, They uh, there's a book associated with the exhibit, and it's all about the gut flora and and the new information that is coming out about how that really determines the outcome of your health, uh, both in the short and long term. It was fascinating, um, but anyway, so today. My guest is me. That's right, me. Um, and the reason is because I've been having trouble rounding up all the political types that I had hoped to corral for interviews uh, about the food system um, during this electoral cycle. And but I still want to talk about politics and food. And and you know not everybody feels that same way. So so I decided that I would just kind of write my own script about what I wanted to talk about because I do obviously think about the food system a lot. And I've come to believe that. Um, that politicians literally have almost no awareness of the issues that many of us kind of take for granted about the food system. First of all, they don't necessarily eat that well themselves. Um, and they, they're just not tuned into the ideas. They, they, they don't, these guys don't really read a lot. They got to read their bills. Um, and they get sort of staff reports on things, but I don't get the sense that they get a whole lot of other, Uh, material from which to sort of round out an education, particularly about something like a food system, which most people really take for granted. I mean, you know, listeners aside, um, most people don't care, don't want to know or find it overwhelming to think about and just generally guilt producing uh, because they know that they probably shouldn't be eating what they're eating. But at the same time, what are they supposed to do? You know, because they have a job, they have kids, they have commit, you know, commitments and, and, you know, whatever, you know, all the stuff that keeps you from getting some time in the kitchen, which granted, I, I, I find it difficult to do myself, although I really love to cook. Um, but I am in a minority and I know that. And, and I also know that there aren't that many people who, um, who do have expertise in the kitchen anymore. <clears throat> and I think, you know, that's why Michael Pollan did his HBO. Was it HBO, Jack? The, the uh, Michael Pollan series on cooking? That just aired. No. 
something like that. It was, you know, some cable channel did a did yeah, a whole series with him, which was supposed to be really great. Um, I don't, I mean, I like, I admire Michael Pollan. I like his uh, books, um, but I didn't really feel like watching the show. I, I, I will admit that. Um, anyway, I, you know, I, I hear a lot about the, the broken, quote unquote, broken food system. And yeah, you could call it a broken food system, I guess. I personally call it incredibly efficient and remarkably successful in terms of, you know, how much it delivers, uh, the kinds of yields we get, um, the other economic measures by which you, you know, identify success. Um, it's wildly successful in deploying enormous quantities of just a few crops. I mean, think about all the things that we've managed to put corn into. It's just, it's mesmerizing. It's incredible. Um, you know, the part where it really falls apart is in the sphere of public health and environmental damages. Um, but to me, the problems all seem to get lumped together in a way that makes it hard to appreciate uh, the parts that are done well um, versus the ones that are, are doing harm. And, and unless we want to, th- you know, throw the whole system out, which I guess some people would like to do, I, you know, I think we need to sort of identify the trouble spots and figure out piece by piece where we can have an impact on fixing those things. Um, what are the things that we have to make peace with? I personally think that we have to make peace with industrial production of meat. Um, I doesn't mean that I think we should keep doing it the way we do it. I just think that given the amount of uh, arable land available for grazing, um, you know, we have to recognize that it's not practical to assume that we will be able to house our population as it grows around the world and and also have a large ruminants on pasture all the way through their lives. I just don't think it can happen. So I think we have to figure out a way to make, you know, the present system the one that we like, the one that we want. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of the things that we have to make peace with. Um, there are other things that will have to be made peace with. And, and that's where you guys, you know, you listeners, I would love to hear what you think about, um, you know, what are the worst and the best aspects of the system that we have? Like, what are the things that work well? Well, transportation works well, if you want to think about that, but it could be better. We could use rail more than we use trucks, right? But at the same time, we have fantastic distribution system. Um you know, our food safety is really good here. We have problems. Yes, we do. But compared to most other countries, we are miles ahead. Uh, so that's something that we should rejoice in, even as we recognize, just like in the whole joys and sorrows segment, everything is nuanced. And I guess that's what bugs me about, you know, the way people talk about the food system. It's like everything is so freaking black and white. And my problem in life in general is that I don't see anything black and white. I see everything as shades of gray, everything, whether it's interpersonal relationships, whether it's transactions and, you know, like everything has a shade of gray to it. And I just, I just don't get this black and white concept. And um, so I, I kind of want to figure out like, what are the things that we can fix and what are the things that we can improve and then move on from there? So, you know, feel free to write on my radio page. I do have one on the Heritage Radio Network website. You know, write about it, tweet about it. What do you think would be better? Um, how do you see the improvements? I mean, as problems, here's, I wrote a list of problems. So here are the problems that I see, the big problems. Food insecurity and lack of access for low-income co- consumers. Okay, that's number one. Too much salt, sugar, and fat in processed foods, which leads to poor health outcomes. 
Soda habits, as I mentioned earlier, I think soda should be eliminated. I mean, why why we can't have a tax on soda the way we do on cigarettes or, you know, alcohol, I don't understand. It's every bit as bad for you as smoking or drinking too much, right? Um, monocropping, growing too much of the same crop, that's a huge problem. It's got all kinds of implications. Industrialized meat and dairy production as it exists now. Huge problems with that. Pollution from industrial food production, either from land or from animals. Inadequate labeling laws. We talk, Marion Nestle talks a lot about bad labeling. Uh, lots of people talk about bad labeling. And whether it's labeling in terms of dates and sell-by dates or whether it's labeling in terms of ingredients and how you alert people to you know what nutrients are in or not in uh, the foods that you're buying. These are all things that need to be addressed. Uh, there are too few farmers for the coming age. What are we going to do about that? Who's going to grow the food? There's not enough people out there who are going into farming. And why is that? You know, that's a problem that we can all be thinking about and addressing in terms of where do you want your tax money to go? Where, you know, like we, we get we get to have a say about this stuff, which is sort of the point of this whole program. Um, high land prices, a real barrier to startup farmers. Kids cannot get a foothold because they can't buy any property. Now, there are other farmers who have had, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of acres in their family for years. They're selling out. More times than not, they'll sell to a big corporation and they won't make a deal with a young farmer and sell them a couple hundred acres. You know what I mean? There's got to be some way of uh, improving the outcomes for both the people who want to cash in on their land and those that want to buy land. That's, that's, that's got to be a pretty easy fi- fix. Slave wages and conditions for food workers up and down the food chain. That's a major problem. That can be fixed. There's no reason that can't be fixed. Uh, food waste, huge problem. Lots of greenhouse gases, lots of people going hungry, unbelievable waste of resources. Again, something that's pretty easy to fix. So those are the things that I see as like, you know, these are all problems that can be addressed on a legislative level. They can be addressed as an advocacy project. Um, But most importantly, it's like you've got to engage. You know, I feel like we really have to engage more in the political process. And that's where I feel like um, the whole sort of food activism thing you know, we talk a good game and we have had like tremendous successes. Let's not forget. I mean, there have been some really incredible successes in terms of, uh, you know, getting rid of battery cages for laying hens, um, improving overall animal welfare conditions, uh, getting antibiotics out of the food supply, not because the industry wants to, but because consumers have said to McDonald's, to Chick-fil-A, to Panera and to all these other corporations, we don't want to eat that. And those corporations respond to consumer demand. So if we gave those, you know, if we gave our legislators the tools to enforce that more within the industry, we would see bigger changes happening faster. I'm just saying. Um, We're going to talk more about that in a second. One of the things that I really noticed, though, is, um, you know, everybody freaks out over genetically modified organisms or GMOs or genetically engineered foods. Um, And... You know, beyond that, other things sort of sort of fall off the radar. It's like, you know, everyone rallies around GMOs. I personally think GMO is basically uh, the reasons why people are upset about it. The lack of labeling is the least of our problems. I don't give a shit whether it's labeled. I really don't. We have been eating genetically modified foods for decades since they came online in the 1990s. 
High fructose corn syrup is a genetically modified food. That corn is genetically modified. Um, you know, soy, soybean oil, any place that you eat soy, those are genetically modified crops. We've been eating them now for 20, 25 years. I don't see, other than the huge rise in, in obesity, which I suppose you could lay at the door of those products, but I'd be more inclined to think that it's the antibiotics, excessive antibiotics, uh, Actually, that's not even accurate. I'm lying about that. That's not true. It's not antibiotics in your food. You don't have antibiotics in your food. They're all taken out before the animal goes to slaughter. Just so you know, there are no antibiotics in your food. But <clears throat> we do get a lot of antibiotics just in our day-to-day living. And the other thing is, is, that we <clears throat> is that we drink a lot of soda and we eat too much. Those are the things that are making people fat. But the you know genetically modified foods like soy and corn are not... The labeling is not the issue. What the issue is, I mean, it's, it's perfectly legitimate to ask for that. Other countries have no problem with labeling those products. Even American companies that do business in Europe label it. They don't have a problem with labeling it there, but they can't label it here. But the real problem with genetically modified organisms is that, first of all, they were brought to market way too fast. The FDA basically gave them a free pass, and the only studies were done by the actual companies themselves, like Monsanto, Syngenta, DuPont, Pioneer. So that was one problem, okay? So they gave them a free pass to market and produce an untested product and put it into the food system. So that's whose problem is that? That's really the FDA. So to me, the issue is the FDA failed to do its job in protecting the population. So isn't that the problem more than whether or not GMO products are labeled properly? The real problem is that we don't fund our food and drug agencies and food safety and inspection services adequately. So that's one thing. And and shouldn't we be looking for ways to build that agency so it's more robust, so it isn't uh, so easily persuaded by lobbying interests? Yes, I think that's the real problem. The other real problem with GMO products is that they develop super weeds, and now we're spraying more and more ferocious herbicides to get rid of them. So here we are demanding labels when what I really think we should be doing is basically fighting to ban these products altogether. So the question becomes, is the real issue labeling because... We don't want it, you know, we want to know whether or not this is in our food, which it already is. Or is the real problem that this freaking, you know, technology is coming to make our crops more dangerous than they ever were before in terms of pollution? I feel like all the attention goes to the labeling and none of it goes to the fact that their genetically modified organisms are requiring more and more herbicides in order to remain viable. And that's bad for the land. That's pollution. And then the, the last and most important aspect of GMO seeds that I think represents real danger is that only a few companies control the distribution of those seeds, which means that our food supply rests in the hands of a very few corporations. And just to sort of uh, further illustrate that point, China has just bought one of the biggest seed companies in the world, Syngenta, a Swiss company with a big footprint here. And so that tech is now owned by a rival nation, that is making very vigorous plans around their population's food security in the future. And that seems to be something that we don't particularly take seriously in our country or even in other countries. So, um, you know, those are the things that are scary to me about GMOs, not whether or not uh, my soda is labeled as having genetically modified high fructose corn syrup in it. I don't give a shit, frankly. Sorry about the bad language. But as my sister will tell you, I have Tourette's. 
But um, the desire to take these huge issues and package them in sound bites seems to mean that some of the more threatening elements of them, such as the ones I just described, get lost in the storm and drang of the lesser issues like labeling. So if you gave me my druthers between insisting on labeling or insisting on outlawing for pollution, superweeds, and monopolistic ownership of the food supply, my money would be in the latter category. I don't care if it's labeled. Here's another thing we could talk about vis-a-vis the, the Food and Drug Administration, and that's grass, generally regarded as safe. You see that label a lot on things, G-R-A-S, generally regarded as safe. And what that means is that a company has been allowed to incorporate an ingredient into a food or a cosmetic or a lotion or whatever, where only they, there is no third-party oversight. The FDA has not tested that product, especially if it's a product that's been used in other things to no ill effect. They'll put it into a new product without really knowing what its impacts are going to be. That's dangerous. I think grass should be revised, if not revoked, um, because what it means basically is that the fox is guarding the hen house. So, you know, if you want to you know, you want to freak out about what's happening on on the government level. What we really need is to retool and refund the FDA. Like that to me is like one of the biggest issues that we have in terms of renegotiating our food system. And then if you want to talk about other parts of, um, of the food system that can be addressed uh, through legislation, um, I want to remind you of uh, the Food Political Action Group, uh, which is headed by Tom Colicchio, Claire Benjamin DiMattina, and others. Um, Claire was actually a guest on this show a few weeks ago. I forgot to note down the episode number, but if you want to learn more about food policy action, you should definitely take a listen to that episode because she tells you all about it. And they have on their website, they not only give a scorecard for the senators, which shows how they vote on various issues related to the food industry or food system, Um but it also tells you what legislation is pending. And I thought that was just, you know, it's just fascinating to see what does come up and what doesn't. So in the context of the list that I gave earlier, um, things like too much salt, sugar, and fat in processed foods, which we all know leads to poor health, health income outcomes, um, that's not part of, the, of any legislative uh, initiative, which is interesting. But one thing that is, is the preservation of antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act. Don't roll your eyes, Jack. I'm going to talk about antibiotics. <laughs> it's been so long. I know, right? I'm sure you've been waiting for me to bring it up. Now, this bill has been, which was introduced by Louise Slaughter from uh, upstate New York, oh, about a decade ago, um, has been languishing in Congress for over 10 years. Like, they cannot pass this legislation. It's known as PAMTA, P-A-M-T-A. Now, the antibiotics issue got a lot of play for a year or two. And in fact, I will boast uh, over the fact that I was one of the first people that I heard making a stink about antibiotics in animal agriculture. That was over six years ago. Um, and then the, the issue actually caught some traction uh, thanks to fabulous journalists like Marin McKenna, uh, who was interviewed here uh, in episodes 54 and 128. Um, and then from Consumers Union, we had Gene Halloran in episode 41 and Dr. Orvashi Rangan, who's been on two or three, four times. Uh, but this particular episode, 67, um, was in 2013 or 14. And then, and Jack, you can line up the next clip, um, way back in 2012, this was my first interview on the subject of um, antibiotics in animal agriculture. And I was just kind of getting the, the gist of it. And it was just starting 
didn't, it was not in mainstream media at all. But here is Dr. James Johnson from the University of Minnesota in episode 45 of Straight No Chaser. We're talking the Wayback Machine. Um, so why don't you run that clip, Jack, and uh, we'll come back and talk for a minute more about antibiotics. Yes, it's here. It's with. I mean, I feel like there just isn't a lot of press about this. And would you concur that this is definitely a very major public health issue in the making? Well, it's it's not just in the making. I mean, it is now. It's a huge public health issue. And people in the public health system and infectious disease specialists who have to treat these now becoming almost impossible to treat infections are very aware of it. I mean, we're tearing our hair out. I just got back from the National Infectious Disease Meeting, and it was session after session about the horrible onslaught of antibiotic-resistant bacteria for which we have no good drugs anymore, right. and the drug companies aren't making new drugs. So it's not like a pending public health crisis. It actually is a public health ongoing. crisis. And in fact, it has been for several years. It's just we're sort of in a zombie state. People aren't aware of it, but we're we're People say, when will the train go off the rails? It's off the rails. In some parts of our country and in some parts of the world, you can't treat these infections anymore uh, because they're resistant to everything we have. And people are dying. So, you know, is that a public health problem in large numbers? Yes, it's here. It's with us. Mm -hmm. Uh, in in, In my community, fortunately, we've been relatively protected. We're in the middle of the country. We haven't seen the worst of the worst bugs, but they're starting to show up as a trickle. But even the moderately bad bugs that we don't have good oral antibiotics, you can't give pills for UTIs now for some of these bugs. You have to give an IV. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, where are we going? This is a public health uh, yeah. crisis right now. It's not tomorrow. It's now. So there you have it. That was back in 2012. And, you know, the good news here is that um, is that guys like that and then, you know, the, the journalists, such as I mentioned before, like Marin McKenna, who's been amazing in covering this. Uh, she wrote the book Superbug. Um, Anyway, she, she and, and many others uh, have, have forced the public to recognize this. And now, you know, I don't want antibiotics in my meat has become a kind of a mantra around this country anyway. Um, certainly not in other countries, although the Europeans are very careful about their antibiotic use. Um, but, the, um, but Americans up until four or five years ago really literally had no idea. And the sad thing is, is that the FDA issued these guidances in 2013, which are only now just finally being uh, fully phased in. And mind you, these are guidances. They are not laws um, which uh, govern the use of antibiotics in the food system. And, you know, the, the, the reason that we have seen any changes at all is not because of legislation, is not because of, of uh, political will on the part of our elected officials. It's because companies like McDonald's and Chick-fil-A, et cetera, have taken the pulse of the consumer and have responded to it. I mean, without them, nothing would have happened. So we we really should be very grateful to these fast food companies that are responsive and are able to respond quickly to public uh, public dissatisfaction with parts of their food system. And so that's I think that's a very that was a very important and object lesson to me in how strong a consumer preferences. Uh, uh, can be in terms of altering uh, food system um, protocols, and yet at the same time, those same strong consumer preferences being expressed don't seem to have the impact on our elected officials that one might hope, which speaks very much to the whole uh, impact of lobbying and how um, and how that uh, how that perverts our social system overall, our democracy overall. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to beat this up for more, but I, I was thinking maybe I should do a few more programs about antibiotics. <laughs> 
just to, just to, you know, just to get you, get you up to speed on it, Jack. I know you like being an yes. expert on this subject. Um, but we do have an impact on this stuff. And so, you know, the more that we engage on a political level, as well as on a consumer preference level, the more likely we might actually see a real law go into effect that will protect us further from the predations of the meat industry, which, you know, like it or not, they're talking they're talking profits. I mean, you take that growth promotion part out of the equation and they're they are not gonna make as much money and that is not an acceptable outcome for them. So it really has to be legislation. It cannot be guidances. Um then uh just to quickly move on, because I see that I'm almost out of time. And oh, my God, can you imagine I talk this long without I, I, don't, I, I should do this every week? Who it's, needs it's a like freaking you've done this guest? before or something. <laughs> Who needs a freaking guest? Um, <laughs> actually, it's kind of lonely in here. I miss having a guest. But um, anyway, there were four bills around seafood that are on that uh, food policy action website, which I thought were really interesting and good. Um, they aren't sexy to the mainstream. In fact, people don't really think or talk that much about uh, the seafood industry as a sort of whole. Um, seafood fraud is an unbelievable problem. Uh, overfishing remains an unbelievable problem. Um, we import 80% of our fish supplies into this country and we export almost the same amount, which means that we are buying bad farmed fish from places that employ slave labor uh, such as Vietnam, Thailand, etc. And we are, you know, basically killing our own fishermen uh, by not buying their products. So that's, um, there are four really good bills uh, that are being uh, looked at in, in the, uh, in the Congress right now. And those are bills that if you care about seafood and the future of fishing, uh, you should weigh in as a, as a consumer and as a voter. Um, you know, this is something we can do. It's it's like we can do this. We can make these messages go to these people. Um, then there's uh, there are two bills that I thought were really one in the Senate, one in the in the in the House. They're called the Safe Food Act of 2015. This one is really big. What this does is uh, transfer and consolidate the authority for inspections, enforcement, and labeling into a single food safety agency, and it provides the authority, and this is huge, provides the authority to require the recall of unsafe food. Can you imagine? We don't have that already. The requirement to recall unsafe food. Think about what that means for a minute. That means that if like, uh, for example, remember the Peanut Corporation of America, the guy just went to jail for like 25 years, Stuart Parnell? That's because he knew bloody well that he was exporting uh, salmonellosis from his peanuts. But he didn't, <laughs> there was no requirement to recall. So hundreds and hundreds of people got sick and quite a few people died. That's, this is something that would really help us with that. So that's something that people should weigh in. And also the other thing is, is that I don't know if people realize, but the USDA and the FDA share uh, responsibility for inspecting our food. And so some things are inspected by the FDA and some things are inspected by the USDA. And of course, never the twain shall meet. I mean, they don't really share information. It's a very unwieldy system. It needs to be changed. And that I thought was going to be part of the Food Safety Modernization Act, um, which has been stymied in Congress through lack of funding, but is finally starting to get implemented. Um, but anyway, there's something that you can, you know, go to your elected official and say, vote yes on the Safe Food Act. We want that. Um, then there are eight bills that address childhood nutrition and hunger. Uh, there are three related to working in agriculture or food, uh, which include uh, a, a clause about paid sick leave, which is huge. Um, and as citizens, we can write, we can tweet, we can Facebook our elected officials. 
But do we do that? No, we don't. It seems to me that the biggest problem we face in addressing many of the ills of our food system is actually the lack of engagement. Uh, on a political level, we shrug. Um, nothing we say matters anyway. They're not going to change anything. Uh, corporations own everything. Well, that is correct when we don't vote or write or make ourselves heard. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You let the corporations win. And they win, too. They want to win. Um so are these the measures that are going to turn our food ship in the right direction? Uh, I don't know. But they're, you know, they're definitely a start. And, and it's a way to, to tell people who you're voting for that these are the issues that you care about. And then maybe more of those issues will start coming up on these legislative agendas. Because there's a lot out there that we can do to influence the system um, that you know, that we should be actually paying a lot of attention to that we don't. Um, I guess I should wrap this up here pretty, pretty much. But, uh, you know, the real problem is, is that, you know, people want to, they want to eat well, but they don't want to do the work and, or they can't do the work of cooking. And that's, that's a real problem that I, I do not have an answer for that. I don't know what the answer is to that other than to enforce uh, nutrition rules and regulations that make prepared foods safer and healthier for people. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of because lots of people cannot, will not, don't want to, or don't care enough to cook their own food. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we have the public health problems that we have. Um, so, so let's talk about some of the principles um, that they expressed in the plate of the union. Um, again, you can listen to um, a whole broadcast about the plate of the union with um, my guest, Ricardo Salvador, uh, the director of um, food uh, for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, he was fantastic. One of the best interviews I've ever had. Um, I definitely recommend listening to that. And their issues, and this is what I think that we should be demanding from our legislators. We want healthy food access. We want childhood nutrition. We want fair wages for food workers. We want government subsidies for processed food ingredients to go away. We want the process, we want the government subsidies to go towards fruit and vegetables, not towards corn and soy and cotton and rice. Um, and lastly, we want the government to address pollution from, farm, from farming, whether it's nutrient runoff from agriculture, like corn and soy, or whether it's uh, pollution from animal agriculture. Those things have to be addressed on a legislative level, um, and the communities that are suffering from them uh, need to be helped with that. So those are the things that we can demand from our legislators to bring bills to the floor. And according to Tim Ryan, the uh, Ohio congressman who joined me earlier this year, as well as Claire Benjamin DeMatina from um, from uh, Food Policy Action, they do read our letters and they do hear us. It's just they don't hear us as well as they hear those agribusiness donors. So we have to be louder. We have to make the change. So that's the end of my uh, monologue. <laughs> this was fun. Um, and uh, thanks for listening. And thanks so much to my sponsor, Firesider. I'm definitely going right to that website and ordering up a bottle of that stuff. It sounds like the elixir of life. Maybe I'll live forever. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. And thanks again for my engineer, Jack, for putting those clips together for me. So long. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.